Okay. Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at verses 7 through 15 here tonight. We'll get to that here in just a moment. Um, so I read a story this week about these two men who were uh, having a conversation about which one was more spiritual or, or religious than the other. And the one man said to the other, well, if you think you're so good, if you think you're so religious, I'll bet you $10 that you can't even say the Lord's Prayer. To which the man said, of course I can say the Lord's Prayer. And I'll take your $10. He said, okay, show me. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. The other guy looked at him and, golly, I never thought you could do it. Passed him over $10. <laughs> so one of the most basic and vital parts of the Christian life is prayer. What is prayer in its simplest form? It's simply our way of communicating with God. Prayer is an absolutely amazing thing and quite honestly is probably one of, if not the most important discipline that we can have as God's people. Prayer is the portal through which we come into the presence of our God in heaven. It's the place where we can offer our praises and express our petitions to the Lord. It's the place where a Christian finds comfort and peace in times of trouble and finds strength and wisdom in times of need. Prayer encourages our souls. It gives us much-needed focus in a world full of distractions. And that's just the beginning of what prayer is and what prayer does. And I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that prayer is, quite honestly, one of the most vital parts of our lives. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight as we get into God's Word. Now, over the last number of weeks, we've been going through what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And again, for, for those of you that haven't been here, the Sermon on the Mount was essentially a teaching that Jesus gave um, up in northern Israel on a hillside. And it was really the most famous teaching he gave, which really was the foundation for all the teaching in his earthly ministry that he did. And we've kind of been, and have been kind of going through that. And so far, um, we've seen Jesus instruct us on a number of different things from what our attitude should be as God's people, um, especially when we consider that we're supposed to be the lights to this dark world. We've talked talked about a proper understanding between the relationship of God's law um, and sin and God's grace and how that all kind of works together in our lives. Um, we've talked about how God's people should interact um, with people, both people with each other and people in this world, whether they're easy to get along to or whether they're not. And last week we spent some time talking about our motives, especially when it comes to just the common pr Christian practices that we do um, throughout um, our Christian lives, whether we give or pray or fast or serve or whatever it is that we do in the name of our service to the Lord. Jesus talked about how we need to make sure that our motives are pure when we do each of those things, meaning we don't do those things um, to get people to notice us. We don't do those things for an attaboy or for a compliment or for a pat on the back. The motivation of our heart, no matter what service we do for the Lord, should be purely out of a desire to be obedient to Him and our love for Him and the people around us, which is the proper motivation we should have as God's people. Now today, we're going to be taking a kind of a deeper look at one of the things we talked about last week, which is prayer. And honestly, this is probably the most... Um, well-known part of the surmount that there is, which is kind of what, we're, what has really been known as the, the Lord's Prayer. So why don't we go ahead and read our text tonight, 
Starting in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read through verse 15. Um, not all this is the Lord's Prayer, but it all kind of has to do with the same thing. And it starts here and says this. When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. And so pray like this, our Father in heaven... May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to be here tonight. Um, Lord, it's so good to be here with your people. Lord, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come together and fellowship and, and, and worship you, that we can have this time where we can get into your word, and, and which just gives us instruction, God, for our life that many times encourages us, many in times challenges us, many in times, Lord, your word convicts us. And and whatever it is, God, that we need as individuals tonight, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in this place upon our hearts and minds. Lord God, as I say each week, Father, there is no power in the words of man. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just use my lips to speak to your people tonight, that, that the words that come forth would be yours and not mine, that you receive all the glory, Father, in this place. Remove any obstacles, remove any distractions from this place. God, that you can reign in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled my message today, A Guide for Prayer, and that's really exactly the way we should look at this particular passage of the Bible. This model prayer of Jesus wasn't, it really wasn't given for the purpose of reciting these words verbatim over and over and over again, week after week after week. Really what this is, is an outline, if you will. In fact, as we'll see, it's kind of like a, a small outline. He gives us kind of bullet points, and, and we can take his main point and kind of fill in the rest with our prayers. Now, as we think about prayer, I think most Christian people, at some point in their life at least, have asked themselves the question, is there a proper way to pray to the Lord? Has anybody ever asked themselves that question or thought that? Now, we think that I think there's kind of two general trains of thought that kind of go on, one being kind of from a substance standpoint, like are there proper words that I should say? Are there certain things that I should pray about or not pray about? Or what does that look like? And even I think to a certain extent, we wonder, is there a certain posture or physical way that is the proper way to pray? Like, is it okay to, to pray driving down the road with our eyes open? Or do we need to be on our knees with our hands folded and our heads bowed and our eyes closed? What really is the proper way to pray? And depending on who you ask, you may get differing opinions on this. For instance, I read this this week. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, the only proper attitude is down upon one's knees. Nay, I should say, the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms, with rapt and upward eyes. 
Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A, a man should be with his, his eyes fast closed and his head contritely bowed. And, and it seems to me his hand should be solemnly clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. The last one, my favorite here. Well, last year I fell on Hodgkin's well head first, said Cyril Brown. With both my heels a-sticking up and my head, well, it was pointed straight down. And I done prayed right there and then. Best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed as I was standing on my head. You know, one thing I can say with relative assurance is that God doesn't really care all that much what our prayers look like from a physical perspective. I don't think God cares if we're standing up or sitting down or driving down the road or eyes open or eyes closed. I think, and I'm pretty confident in this, that what God cares about is our heart. He cares about our motive in prayer. He cares about the, the content of our prayer far more than he cares about what people see on the outside when they look at us. Now, as we think about these verses here, it is definitely a guide for some things to do. However, Jesus um, really begins here in verse 7 and 8, and, and even in verse 10 in my mind, in talking about a few things that, that prayer isn't. And maybe some misconceptions about prayer that we, even, we, we have thought throughout the course of our lives. For instance, in verse 7, he tells us pretty clearly that prayer is not about convincing God to answer us by our many words. Like verse 7 says, when you pray, don't babble on and on like Gentiles. Do you think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again? So the idea here is God is not looking for just mindless repetition in our prayers. Like if we say something 500 times, you don't finally go, oh, you finally hit the number. Now I'm going to answer your prayer. That's not really the way that God's work. And a really good example of this is really found in 1 Kings chapter 18. This is one of the cool stories in the whole Bible, in my opinion, anyways, is where Elijah, the prophet, was challenging these 450 prophets of Baal, right? And, and so we have this picture. They're up on this mountainside. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the sacrifice. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. You put your bull on one, I'll put my bull on one. And you call off to your gods, I'll call off to mine. Whichever one answers by sending down fire to consume that offering, that's who we'll declare the winner, and that's who we'll serve. So this was the deal, right? And so in, in 1 Kings 18 and verse 26, just listen to this. So these prophets of Baal prepared one of the bulls, placed it on the altar, and says they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us! Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. They danced, they hobbled around, they made noise, and nothing happened. I mean, for hours, they'd, Oh, Baal, answer us! Oh, Baal, answer us! But then you have Elijah. In verse 36, at the usual time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walks up to the altar and prays, O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are the God of Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately the fire from the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the whole thing. So you see the difference here, right? Now, um, the, the idea is this, and this was a quote by the, the great Charles Spurgeon, preacher of old. He says, Christian prayers are measured by weight, not by length. Many and most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. So when it comes to our prayer, Jesus says here in verse 7, it's not about how many words we say, it's about what's coming from here. 
what do we mean, right? I mean, we don't need to repeat ourselves over and over and over and over and over again, assuming that if we annoy God, he'll finally eventually answer us. In verse 8, prayer is also not about informing God of our needs as if he doesn't already know about them. Look at verse 8. He says, don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. See, when we pray, we need to remember who it is that we are talking to. God knows every detail of our life. The fact is, is God knew our need before we even realized we had the need. Try to wrap your mind around that one. The infinite mind of God, knowing all things. And so when we pray, Jesus is saying here that um, we should never, we don't need to petition God in a way that reminds him of every single solitary thing in our life as this huge laundry list that we go down every single day. God knows. We don't need to inform God because God already knows exactly what's going on in our lives. I think the idea is we have a lot better things to pray about than every tiny small detail, right? And prayer is also not about bending God's will to our own. If you look at verse 10, it says, May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is is in heaven. Now, I fully believe that our faith in prayer and our obedience in prayer have a lot to do with God answering prayer. I really believe that. In fact, God expects us to pray. He expects us to ask him to move. But we should never think that our words are going to convince God to do something that is not part of his plan. And this is so important that we grasp and understand this. Now, in a lot of pagan religions, the, the kind of the idea, I believe, is this. That people almost make an attempt to bribe God into answering them. If they pray long enough or loud enough or make enough sacrifices, do enough good deeds in his honor, that God is almost obligated, therefore, to answer them for whatever it is that they want. And in this verse, clearly, there are some things that it's, a, it's about his kingdom, it's about his will, it's not always about our will. Now, why do people think this sometimes? Well, because some Christians have this view of life that we should never suffer, we should never struggle, we should never have problems, and if we do, we can just pray those things away, and God's obligated, because we pray those things in faith, that they're just going to be taken away. But is that what the Bible says? Well, no. Is it possible that God uses struggles and trials and problems and difficulties for a purpose? Is it possible that those things are his will for our lives? Now, we don't like to hear that, but I mean, I I think clearly Scripture says that these things are true. For instance, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us when trials of any kind come, we should what? We should rejoice. We should consider a great joy. Why? Because we know when, we're, when our faith is tested, our endurance has a chance to grow. It says, so let it grow so your endurance will be fully developed. You'll be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you think that's possibly God's will that we suffer at times in our life because he's perfecting us from the inside out? Absolutely. A couple other examples, I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he had this thorn in the side. He was talking about this messenger of Satan that was tormenting him, and he says, I asked the Lord three times to get rid of him, and, and he didn't, but why didn't he? Because he says that the whole purpose of this was so that Paul would not become arrogant or proud. God knew that, and so it was God's will that he suffered this period of time, no matter how many times he prayed. No matter if he prayed a hundred times, it was God's will for him to do this for a specific purpose. Even the, probably the most famous example, you have Jesus 
When he was in the garden, you know, Father, if you're willing to take this cup away from me, do it. And yet, what do he say? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And so when we think about prayer, those are just three basic things Jesus said that prayer is not about. We're not trying to convince God. We don't need some laundry list as if God doesn't know every detail of our life already. And prayer is not about bending God's will for us to get everything that we want so our lives are comfortable. That's not the purpose of prayer. That's not what prayer is all about. Now let's focus on, for a few minutes here, what prayer is about. Now verse 9 tells us this. Pray like this, our Father in heaven. I just want to stop there because that's an amazing thought. Now, for the Jew hearing this for the first time when Jesus was there, this would have been like revolutionary to a Jew because they never in their wildest imaginations would have thought to call God Father. They revered him too much. They, they didn't have that relational mindset that most of us as Christians do today. They were okay speaking of him as the great I Am. They were okay speaking of him as Jehovah or, or Yahweh, right? But the idea of speaking to him like they would speak to their earthly father to them was totally out of the question. But what I love about what Jesus does here is he shows this, that, that prayer is all about relationship, it's all about us speaking to God in heaven in an intimate way, so much so that it's as if it's this relationship between us and him as father and child. And just as a side note, prayer is a privilege for God's people. For a person who does not know Christ as Savior, meaning a person that has never made a decision to, to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, prayer is pointless. Where does it go? The portal of prayer is only for God's people. It's only useful for God's people. But think about the privilege of prayer. Th think about this idea that, that we get to come into the very presence of our Father in heaven, God Almighty. You know, Psalm 100 and verse 4 tells us that we get to enter his courts with thanksgiving and and praise. And we can come whenever we want. Like, th there's no limit on, on how often we can pray. First Thessalonians 5.17 says what? Pray without ceasing. Meaning we can, we can talk to God literally all day, every day if we want to, and it's, his door is always, always open to us as his People. Ephesians 2 18 tells us that Jesus has given us access to the Father. Romans 8 16 and 17 tells us that we've been adopted as God's children, and therefore we can even call him Abba Father. Not just Father, but Abba Father. This idea is even, even more personal, like we're calling him like Daddy in heaven. He wants to. He wants to come to him. I mean, think about Hebrews 4.16. It says we can boldly come before his throne of grace. We can receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it the most. He wants us to come before him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, and he goes on to say this, may your name be kept holy, or the ideas hallowed, revered, worshipped, the idea is that although we can have a relationship with God through prayer, we should never come into his presence flippancy, flippantly, flippantly um, like we are talking to some other human that we're equal to. We may be his children, but we're not equal to God. 
Now, we think about the holiness of God. Consider for a moment who it is that we're coming into the presence of. Yes, we can call him Father, which is absolutely amazing, but he's still God. He's still holy. Now, now think of the holiness of God. The holiness of God made Moses' face literally glow when he came up off the mountain. The holiness of God, when Isaiah came into his presence, he fell on his face in fear and shame. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone, right? The, the presence in the holiness of God speaks in heaven about these angels surrounding the throne. And God is so holy, these angels have six wings. One set to fly with, one to cover their feet, and one to cover their faces because God is so holy. The holiness of God is so amazing, the Bible tells us no sinful man can see God with their own eyes and live. That's who we're talking about when we go to God in prayer. So important to realize that. Now, Jesus sets his foundation right from verse 1. Yes, there's this aspect of prayer that we can call God Father, and we think about that. I mean, think about this. What does a father do for, for his children? He, he shows them care. He shows them love. He provides for their needs. He gives them everything they could possibly need to survive in life, right? And he cares. He comforts all these different things. We have this aspect of, of viewing God this way that he loves us with an everlasting love, and he desires us to be in his presence, to come before him. And at this very same time, he's absolutely holy. He's a sovereign God who deserves to be respected and revered, and he is above us, not equal to us, certainly not below us, which means, as we're going to see here in just a second, when it comes to our prayer, when it comes to our lives, it is not about us. Primarily, it's about him. Now, as we think about even that, that, that first verse there, our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. There's this acronym in prayer. I mean, maybe some of you heard it, but it's like the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, which stands for adoration, as in we, we come to God, he's hallowed, we give him praise for who he is, we, 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 um, we go from A to C, which is confession of sin, we go to T, which is thanksgiving, when we get to S, which is, um, oh, come on, brain, I'll forget, I'll, I'll, it'll come back to me in a second, but anyway, uh, I'll get to it, I forgot. And I didn't write it down. So anyways, uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. But anyways, but this, but this idea that this, the pr prayer has a progression that starts with us praising God for who he is. That he's our Father in heaven who is holy, who is set apart, and we should spend significant time in our prayer recognizing him for who he is. Now, and just think about the things in our life that we should be thankful for to the Lord. Have you ever considered to just, just stop for a moment and, and think about in your prayer times, how, how often do you thank God for life and breath and family and all these things and then go down the list and really the first one should be, man, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for opening up my heart so that I could receive that to be your. I mean, we should spend a significant time of our prayers just at the beginning, just praising him for who he is. But as we think about this, we think about God is Father, we think about God is holy, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of this prayer. Verse 10, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Question, what has God's overarching will or plan been throughout the course of time? Like the, the content of scripture from beginning to end is about his kingdom, 
right? It's about his people. It's, it's him establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This has always been God's focus. This is really the entire narrative of Scripture, which means if this is God's focus, this should be our focus as well, and Jesus makes this clear. Then when we come to God in prayer, the focus is not my kingdom. The focus is his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. If we think about that then, what's God's kingdom all about? It's about reaching people, isn't it? God's kingdom is not about us primarily. It's about us accomplishing his will, which is what? Advancing his kingdom out from us in our lives. See, this verse reminds us that the focus of our prayer should be about God's agenda being accomplished, not about our agenda. Uh, The tendency of many people is to look at prayer as simply a means of getting God to fulfill some sort of a wish list. What's the problem with a prayer like that? It creates nothing but selfish and self-seeking prayers that are focused on our kingdoms and our desires instead of God's. So it's from a very basic thought, whose kingdom is more important, his or ours? Well, obviously his. Now, prayer is definitely a privilege, but prayer also has a purpose. And the main purpose, as we can see from this verse, is is that um, it's not about getting our needs and our wants taken care of mainly. it's, It's about God getting his will accomplished on earth, which at the heart of it is his kingdom being built. And again, we've said his kingdom is built through unsaved people becoming children of God. That, that's how, that is his kingdom. His kingdom is reigning in and through people, and so how does that come about? That comes about through the message of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Now, he says here, may your kingdom come soon. Now, if we're not sharing the gospel, which is required, right, to build God's kingdom means that we need to be sharing the gospel because it's the only way to get people saved. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that we as sinners have a Savior that came to earth, went to a cross, died, buried, rose again, opened up the door of heaven. That's the gospel, right? If we're not sharing that with people, how can we pray, your kingdom come soon? Well, we can't, can we? Not unless we're doing something about us. It requires us to share the gospel. As Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the good news about Jesus Christ. And just as a side note, if you're sick and tired of evil reigning in this world and want to see Jesus come, guess what we got to do? Share the gospel. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, the good news of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Now, the message of the gospel is necessary for the kingdom to be advanced, but one other question we should ask is how is the message of Jesus made most effective in our lives? And the answer to that is when we're actually showing the lost world living proof of what God does when he gets a hold of a person's life. So, so we think about that, right? I'm just, I'm just setting the stage for thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The focus of the whole Bible about when we think about that statement is God building his kingdom on earth through people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and getting saved. One by one by one, that is God's overarching will from, from the big down to the little. There's a lot of other things that are all God's will, but the biggest one right there, that's the focus of the entire Bible. So we can say assuredly that thy kingdom come means we need to get people saved. 
which requires us doing our job. Now, does this come naturally to us? Well, no. Is it easy to build God's kingdom? Is it easy sharing the gospel? No. Shoot, it's, it's, it's hard even to live like a Christian, isn't it? It's a challenge to even live like we know we're supposed to live. It's, is it easy to convince people that need Jesus to, to convince them that they're sinners in need of a Savior? No, it's, it's not. No, all of that goes against our very nature. Why? Because what's required of us to be kingdom builders at its very nature requires us to be selfless, sacrificial Christians who don't live for us, but live for God and the people around us. The problem is we want everything to be about us, and being kingdom-minded people requires us to put God's kingdom first and our kingdom on the back burner. So this leads me then to another huge purpose in prayer is this. If our struggle as human beings, which it is, is to put our self first, our lives in, in the main focus. I mean, we're, we're by nature self-focused, self-centered people. Me included, all of us are. If, if that's who we are because of the sin nature in us, what has to happen inside of us? We have to have a change of heart. We have to have a change of mind. We have to have a change of attitude. And so if we think about prayer and the purpose of prayer, it's primarily about getting God's kingdom coming, his will being done, but for that to happen, we have to have a heart change. And, and see, prayer in its, in, in its very um, basic thing when it comes to us as individuals is not about us getting God to fill some sort of laundry list. It's about God changing us from the inside out. Prayer's purpose is to align our hearts, our minds, our will with God's will and plan. From the its central focus, that's what prayer really is all about. And when our hearts and minds are aligned with God's heart and mind, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. Now, why is this vital to keep in perspective? Because if we think the only purpose of our prayers is to get God to give us what we want, to make us comfortable, we will never be kingdom-minded people. We'll instead be selfish Christians who are only worried about our own lives. However, when we start to see that our lives are purposed to bring God glory, when we realize that we've been saved by Jesus to be kingdom builders, when we realize that the power to change the world around us comes from spreading the message of Jesus, what does it do? It changes our prayers completely. Instead of spending all of our time saying, God, I need this, God, I need this, God, I need this, God, I need this, Lord, I have this problem, I have this problem, I have this problem. Those things get put on the back burner because I've come to this point where I understand my job is to bring glory to my holy God in heaven. And the only way I can do that is to align myself with his purposes, which is so his kingdom is built upon this earth, his will being done, which is people being saved. So therefore, a huge portion of my prayer and the main focus of my prayer is God Help me to do that. When we th remember I told you, like, these are bullet points almost, right, for a prayer. 
Your, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we, when we think about, here's some things we should think about when we pray this. God, give me your eyes to see people like you do. God, work in my heart and give me a passion for the lost. God, help me to live my life in a way that shines Jesus to, so people take me seriously. God, give me the grace to be kind and generous and gracious and joyful so that people can see Jesus in me. God, give me opportunities to share him. God, give me the boldness and the wisdom to speak when those opportunities come. God, soften the hearts of people that I can receive this, 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 so they can receive your message of salvation. It's stuff like that. These things should be a part of our prayer if we truly mean, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We have to have prayers like this. God, Satan has the heart and the mind of that person over there. God, I need you to to open their minds so they can hear the gospel. I need you to to remove the obstacles in them that they can have a heart that is receptive. These are important when we think about your kingdom come, your will be done. And if that's the main focus of our prayer, is his kingdom, think about the rest of these things. For instance, give us today the food we need. Now, in one aspect, it's cool that that God cares about our needs. Even, even the, I mean, food. The, the most basic need there is, is putting food in our bellies. God loves us so much, he cares about even that little thing. Like that. Our basic daily needs. And you know what I love about the way this is? Is this verse tells us that we can ask God with confidence. Because he's our father. Even food. Yep, God, I need food, you know it. And I'm just going to trust you for it. Now, in Jesus' day, this was very literal. I mean, they didn't have pantries full of food like we do today, and, and they were literally dependent on God every day for their survival. And then, so there's an aspect of this where we're, we're petitioning God, right? We're, where we're asking God, we need you, Lord, to provide. What, what does this do? It, it gives us a sense of dependency upon him. Well, when we start asking God just for the basic necessities, it reminds us that we're dependent on God for everything that we do, that, that without him we'll perish, without him we'll have nothing, without him there's absolutely no hope whatsoever. And I can tell you that one of the, one of the hard things about living in a country where there's so much wealth and so much of everything is it's difficult to live a life of dependency upon God when you have money in the bank and cars that drive and food in the pantry and no worries. It's really hard to do this, but Jesus says here that we even need to remember that even the most basic things we are absolutely dependent upon the Lord for. Now there's also the idea here, this means that that basically this is the idea that, that God give me what I need for today so I can accomplish through me, so you can accomplish through me what you want to do. So if, if our lives are about kingdom building, when we, when we think about, Lord, give me food, it's, Lord, I, I don't need to worry about all this other stuff. Lord, please provide for me because I, I'm recognizing that you're my supplier of everything. You're my provider, but help me to stay focused on your kingdom. Help me not to worry about these, all these other things. And then we get down to this next one in verse 12. He says, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. 
1 John 1, 9 tells us that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness or unrighteousness. And so Jesus says here that, that part of our everyday prayer should be pondering the things that we have done the day before and confessing any sins or mistakes that we have made. Now, why is that important? Because sin causes problems. Like, if, if we have unconfessed sin hanging over our heads, it puts a barrier between us and God. And, and so this daily confession of sin is like getting our hearts and minds realigned with him. Because every sin that we do puts, pushes us further and further and further away from the Lord. And for us to be effective kingdom builders, we need to be here. We need to be next to him without any barrier, without any separation whatsoever. See, it's a daily reminder that I not only need God to take care of my basic needs, I need him to help me take care of my greatest need, which is my sinful self. It reminds us that, that God, without you, I have no hope. Without you, I would go down this road of no return. God, the only good thing in me is you, so cleanse me and help me to live for you. When we think about prayer, we have to have that as part of our prayer. It's, it's that one thing that reminds us how desperately in need we are of the presence of God in our lives because, golly, I don't know about you, but I got a laundry list I got to confess every morning. Because no matter how hard I try, I can't quite do it. And, it, and when, I, when I have that time of confession, it reminds me all over again that, God, I am nothing without you. Without you, Lord, I wouldn't even want to know where I would end up in my life. And so it brings us to this place where we recognize that. Now think about this, even bring this back to our overall purpose, which is to get his kingdom built, his, his, his will being done on earth. What is the greatest motivator of a Christian? Is it, is it not internalizing the gospel in our own lives? When you think about confessing sin, how do you not consider the fact that you've been saved from sin through Christ? And when we recognize that, boy, we're sinners in need of a Savior every single day, it keeps our mind focused that for all that you have done for me, Lord, how do I not spend my life doing what you've called me to do, which is to build your kingdom? But now notice what he says here. He says, and forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. It's, a, it's an assumption that Christians will hold no bitterness or for unforgiveness towards another. It's a reality that people sin against us, but our responsibility as God's people is to forgive them. Does anybody ever tick you off during the day? Is it easy to hold a grudge or to hold some animosity or to have bitterness toward them? Well, sure it is. I think it's natural, but, but Jesus says here that as we're confessing our own personal sin to him, at the same time we should consider, yeah, um, Joe over there did this to me yesterday, but Lord, help me to forgive them. Help me not to hold bitterness toward him. Help me to, to not to hold that against him, right? Why? Because look at verse 14 to 15. Let's jump ahead to that one. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to give others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Th think about the gravity of that statement. He says, if we hold unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart... There will be no forgiveness given to us. Now, what does that mean? I think it means two things. One of two things, right? 
And this goes to this idea of positional forgiveness and relational forgiveness. This is what I mean by this. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that they are forgiven of all sin. Their sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. God chooses to remember it no more. They are given the righteousness of Christ, and they stand absolutely debt-free and innocent before Almighty God, right? So when we come to faith in Christ, from that point forward, that's how God will see us no matter what. But there is this thing that is just, the best way I can explain it is relational forgiveness, right? Meaning, if we have sin in our life, I told you, it causes separation between us and God. The only way to get that sin taken care of is through repentance and confession, right? So I confess that, God, I have have done these things, and I'm going to choose not to do them anymore, so we we get that relationship with God, and we're we're back one again. Well, the idea here is, is, is if we hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, that is a sin against God. And if we hold that, this separation between us and God can never be rectified. You may be saved, but you will live a Christian life that, could, that will not be what your potential could be if you take care of this. It's kind of the idea. Now, there's one of two things here that are kind of at the heart of this. One, if a person is a person that has an unforgiving heart, that is a person that has hold bitterness towards somebody, and they just, in their heart of hearts, absolutely just say, no, that person has offended me, I will not forgive them, no matter what. Here's one possibility. One possibility is, that person may not be saved. Like, if, if a person has that type of animosity toward another, and in their heart of hearts, they, I, no matter what they do, they have hurt me, I will not forgive them, and I'm going to hold this over their head for the rest of their lives. This person, there's a real good chance they may not be right with God in heaven. Here's the second one, probably more likely. So often Christians have a far too high opinion of themselves and therefore very little appreciation for their own salvation. See, there's this parable in the New Testament that Jesus gives. It's this parable about about these two men. This first one, he owed this incredible debt to this king. I mean, it's a debt that today would have been like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. We're talking about a debt that a normal person like you make couldn't pay off in 10 lifetimes. And so this man comes to this king and he says, look, I, I know I owe you this debt. Can you, can you please forgive me and give me time? And, 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 the, and the king says, you know what? I'm going to wipe it away. You're forgiven. The man goes away. Well, that man who was just forgiven had a servant. And that servant owed him just like pennies on the dollar, like nothing. Well, the guy that had just been forgiven this massive debt took the slave and had him beat, had him thrown in the prison. Well, the king found out about what this man did to his servant, and he brought him before his courts, and he says, you wicked, wicked man. He says, I forgave you a debt so great, and yet that man owed you so little and you had him beaten and thrown in prison. Now, the picture of this is this. We as God's people, if you know Christ as Savior, you have been forgiven a debt that we could never pay in a million lifetimes. Our debt against God because of sin is something that we could never, ever pay, ever. It doesn't matter how many lifetimes we get, one sin we could never pay it off on our own. And yet through Christ, he wiped that debt away completely. The point is, is we who have been forgiven so much 
I don't care who did what to us. We have no right whatsoever as Christians to hold any sort of grudge, any sort of animosity, any hatred or unforgiveness in our heart towards anybody. This is a fact. And people that do are either, one, not saved, or two, have no appreciation of their salvation. And so Jesus says here that part of our daily prayer is recognizing our sin and dealing with anybody else around us that has offended us. And then in verse 13 he says, Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. You know, we live in a world of temptation. It's, it's inescapable. We have an enemy in Satan. The Bible says seeks only to steal and to kill and to destroy. It describes him like a lion hiding, seeking someone who may, he may devour. With, with that reality, guys, our only hope is the Lord. We have a sin nature inside of us that is unfortunately far too tempted by the things of this world. Even if we know they're wrong, there's something in us that desires to go after them. And if we do, it damages us. We've already talked about how it affects our relationship with the Lord. Not only that, it, it calluses our hearts. It, it affects our witness for people. It's guaranteed, if we allow sin in our life, it's guaranteed to hinder us from being kingdom builders of the Lord. Guaranteed. And so our only hope is every single day, this is, I think, where the whole idea of pray without ceasing in First Thessalonians five seventeen is all about. When we're having conversations with God all day long, have you, you ever? I mean, you, you meet somebody at the store that is rude to you. God help me. God please help me. You know what I mean? And, and your mind, right? I mean, it's kind of the idea. We're, we're faced with all sorts of temptations, all sorts of things in our life, and we need to make sure that in those moments we're saying, God, I need you. Help me. Help me to, to do away with this temptation in my life and cling to you instead. And so we think about just this guide to prayer in closing. Prayer is a lot of things, but the main focus of prayer is, 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 is him. It, it's spending time praising him for who he is, our Father in heaven who should be absolutely adored, our, our God who is holy, that should be revered, who has done so many amazing things, and it's that God that, that we have to petition for our needs, that we have, um, we, we, it, it's that God that we get to talk to about all these different things in our life. It, he, we think about all those things. He's the one we need to keep in mind always, no matter what. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time in your word and for the instruction, God, that comes with it. And, and Lord, I just pray that, Heavenly Father, that there would have been something tonight that would have just stuck in all of our minds as we think about this, this Lord's prayer of, of yours that was given to us by Christ, that, that we would use it as a model, that we use it as an outline, Father, to, um, to make sure that our, that our hearts and minds are focused where they should be, which is on you, which is your kingdom, which is your will. And, and, and so, Father, just give us the grace to, um, to be people that are focused on you and, 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 and choose to, to serve you and to live for you, God, each and every day. Um, Father, we love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing as we close.